The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis issued a statewide stay-at-home order today. Finally. It was Florida where spring breakers captured the nation's attention with their flippant attitudes. It was Florida where municipalities were left to define if their beaches were to be open or closed. It was in Florida where COVID-19 cases have doubled in the last four days to reach 7,000 positive results and 87 deaths as of this afternoon. The reluctant governor gave way to the reality of the virus with this statement. We're going to be in this for another 30 days, I think, based off that. Um, And that's just the reality that we find ourselves in. And so so given those circumstances and given um, uh, given the the, the unique situation in Florida, um, I'm going to be doing an executive order today uh, directing all Floridians to limit movements and personal interactions outside the home to only those necessary to obtain or provide essential services or conduct essential activities. One week ago, however, DeSantis talked of such an order as if it were an act of government oppression. It does kind of make no sense. I mean, you know, you're telling people if you live in, you know, some random town somewhere that you must be imprisoned in your home. Don't leave your home. Don't do it. But yet people are riding the subway in New York City. People fly all over the place from some of the hot zones. I mean, you know, really? Uh, how does that make any sense if we're trying to, to, to contain this thing? So some of these measures, I think, are more symbolic where people can say they're doing something. And did you hear that jibe about the subway? Hold on to that as we play this clip from a different press conference. This was four days ago where DeSantis explained his thinking on why it was permissible to allow certain towns to keep their beaches open. And then you have some other places where they really put a lot of emphasis on uh, maintaining, uh, you know, limited access for their residents that's safe. Um, And and I think that that's a good thing. I mean, you know, when you're talking about a respiratory virus, being in closed places with close contact is the way that it is transmitted. Um, You know, if you have a family and they're just sitting out there in sun, sunshine, heat and humidity in an open space, that's not as um, that's not as big of a problem. And so it was more about the residents. And then I also had some folks on the local level to say, look, we'll manage this in a way that's safe. But if those folks aren't there, then they'll probably do more problems in town. And so just give us some latitude on that. And so I was responsive uh, to that as well. But understand the virus can, of course, be transmitted in an open space. And the argument that he deferred to local officials who were worried about taking those folks off the beaches and inserting them into their towns. Well, if you had a statewide shelter in place order, wouldn't that have taken care of the problem of the people wandering around in the towns? Perhaps a laissez-faire pro-business philosophy was driving DeSantis's decisions. Perhaps it was that he is so closely aligned with the White House. And the White House was encouraging commerce over caution up until a couple days ago. But if you listen closely to DeSantis's press conferences, you will pick up that he had a kind of obsession with another state's practices, Here he was in a press conference held on March 30th. If you look at, like, I mean, New York City, they're still running their subway system. I mean, New York Post will have things where they're packed like sardines on there. And look, it's their city. They do what they want. But the fact of the matter is some of those people on that subway, you know, may end up getting on these flights and coming down. So they. The New York City subway is no doubt 
a dangerous vector of contagion. It is, but it is also an essential mode of transportation for, among others, delivery people, medical personnel, home health aides, grocery store workers. And we should say ridership is down 87%. So New York officials had to make a hard choice. That's what governing is about, hard choices. I guess as DeSantis defines it, it's also sometimes about not so hard choices, but made incorrectly. For instance, here he is defending his failure to close the beaches. And guess what example he cited? It's funny how people will, will, will talk about it. It's more of a political issue. Do you hear the same people complaining about the New York City subway system being open? I mean, give me a break. Like, which one is more conducive uh, to having COVID-19 spread or any respiratory virus? I mean, it's not even close. And they're packed in there. And look, that's fine. If they need to do that, they got to do it. But uh, I mean, let's just be clear like that that's more of a political political issue than a subject. It's actually more of a rhetorical dodge than a substantive explanation. They're embracing a dangerous policy. Therefore, we're justified in embracing a less dangerous policy. In fact, the thinking goes, our policy is not even dangerous. Well, today, reality surpassed rhetoric, and the governor finally did the right thing by issuing his stay-at-home order. By the way, the Miami People Mover, Orlando's Sunrail, they are still up, they are still operational, and they are still packing them in, if not like sardines, then like grouper. On the show today, all right, I'll admit it, that was pretty harsh. That was pretty harsh. And in the spiel, I shan't be any nicer. I mean, I just skewered a politician from the right, Ron DeSantis, and in the spiel, I will, I will deeply criticize a political effort from the left. Hashtag cancel rent. It's maybe more of a slogan than an actual idea. So with all that, with all my skewering and criticism and negativity, I think I'd better call on the better angels of our nature. And also, we better realize how common the better angels are. Jamil Zaki is an empathy researcher. I know, I know, set your intention. But he is a real researcher with real research behind him. Scholarship, studies, and he has a pretty good answer for all of my, shall we say, probing questions. Jamil Zaki, director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Laboratory, up next. In the popular imagination, or maybe just mass media, depictions of tragedies and panics and crises usually adhere to a certain set of rules, and among those rules is the breakdown of social order. Every man for himself, people bypassing their fellow citizen, thinking about them, maybe their family, a reversion to a state of nature and not a nice state. Think predators on the veldt. Well, Dr. Jamil Zaki, who's a professor of psychology at Stanford, has been on the show before. He was talking about the war for kindness, building empathy in a fractured world. And he makes a different point. He, writing in the Wall Street Journal, talks about habits of kindness that will endure. He looks around us. He sees how people really are acting during disasters. And he finds that they're acting pretty nicely. And that doesn't surprise him. And he's researched this, this meaning us, our brains. Hello, Dr. Zaki. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. So 
I know you're a kindness researcher, an empathy researcher, and I suppose a, you know, virologist will find uh, viruses everywhere and perhaps a zoologist will see lemurs where they don't exist. Do you uh, have to check yourself to see life through a kinder lens than maybe it exists? <laughs> I do. Uh, I think we all have our lenses on the world and this is certainly one of mine. Uh, but I also think that the lens that most of us have might be unduly cruel. Uh, I think that that we're so used to paying attention to the negative behaviors that we see around us. They're so sticky, they're sort of grotesquely magnetic that one guy hoarding 17,000 bottles of Purell suddenly becomes our story for human nature in crisis. And I think that's skewed as well. So maybe instead of just pretending that everyone acts kindly, I want to kind of balance the scales and make us remember that there are a lot of people, sure, acting selfishly, but many, many who are acting kindly instead. So you write about an altruism born of suffering. Is that more usual than that? Or, or are there certain kinds of conditions that lead to that altruism as opposed to uh, the breakdown of social order? Yeah, so altruism born of suffering is a concept um, that psychologists Irvin Staub and Joanna Volthart came up with that basically describes this sort of surprising effect of adversity, that when people go through a lot of hardship, they actually sometimes emerge more pro-social than they were before. They've looked at all sorts of different hardships, like severe illness, loss of a loved one, being a, a part of a community during wartime. And in all of those cases, they see evidence for increased kindness afterwards. Now, there might be some, and probably are some, sort of boundary conditions to this type of kindness. So, for instance, when people experience adversity together, or a similar type of adversity, they tend to be kinder to each other. So if you've suffered by being in battle, for instance, you might be more sympathetic to other veterans. And one interesting thing about mass tragedies or this pandemic is that we really are, many of us, suffering in a very similar way. You've also, this is a less in your Wall Street Journal article and more on Twitter, you've been tweeting about the work of uh, psychologist uh, John Drury, is that his name? That's right. And he has really studied in a methodical way reactions to panics and crises. And what does he find? Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, disasters are a weird collision point between different stories that we might tell ourselves about human nature. Because in many different accounts, we aren't really our true selves most of the time. We're sort of penned in by social rules and strictures. And so when disasters hit and the lights turn off and the rules are disrupted, the idea is that, as you put it, we return to nature. The question is, what is that nature? And so as Drury describes, there are these disaster myths, these ideas that, well, that our natural state is one of panic, uh, selfishness, and aggression. So I think this is best exemplified by the film The Purge, you know, where you turn off all the, all the laws for a while and there's just a parade of robbery and murder because that's who we really are. It turns out, though, that Drury and others um, have studied what people actually do after disasters. So Drury has looked at the London bombing um, in the mid-2000s uh, and the bombing in Madrid in 2004, 9-11. Uh, Rebecca Solnit has looked at, uh, for instance, Hurricane Katrina and the earthquakes in 1906 and 1989 here in San Francisco. And in all cases, you see a very different story emerge. It seems as though people, when they're faced with disaster, actually are surprisingly orderly, and surprisingly cooperative. 
that they work together and try to protect each other. And in the aftermath of those disasters, sort of the increase in kindness and altruism is enormous. In 9-11, I believe there was actually a sharp decrease in the murder rate in New York City uh, following the 9-11 attacks, which is, I think, runs exactly counter to the disaster myths that you might see in films. Yeah, and probably the urtext of fiction uh, uh, defining a state of nature as one of um, competition for resources and cruelty is Lord of the Flies, right? And uh, maybe even before that, you had Thomas Hobbes talking about the Leviathan and life being brutal and short. But the point is, as one teacher, the teacher who taught me Lord of the Flies, pointed out, we have but one natural experiment as to what happens when man is stripped of modern devices and has to just go it alone, starting from nothing. And that civilization, as it's progressed, and it does seem that, you know, not always, but we get organized, we get our shit together, we get on with it, and, you know, we learn that killing each other isn't always the most adaptive strategy. I love that, you know, and, and you know, let's not be too rosy here either. There are many ways that the same togetherness that we feel after disasters can also lead to cutting other people out and, and actually being cruel or exclusive. So uh, an example of that is the way that this virus has made people feel biased against people of Asian descent, right? There, there can sometimes be, if we allow fear and a sense of scarcity to overrun us, there can be cases in which disasters turn us inward instead of outward. Uh, I think that one important thing is to remember that part of that is up to us, how we choose to respond to disasters. The stories that we tell ourselves about who we are in these dire circumstances can affect how we see what other people do and can affect what we do. In essence, the stories we tell ourselves become self-fulfilling prophecies. So I want to ask you about a phenomenon that I've noticed uh, from our past talking and reading your book. I know that you agree that the internet and social media can often be, let's say, an accelerant for unempathetic behaviors and actions. And some of that has gone on too. But there's also a phenomenon of shaming those who assemble in public, shaming public officials who don't close down the beaches or close down restaurants. And it is a little bit of a mob mentality. And maybe people are uh, not just trying to be positive and convince others to do the right thing and stay home, but really pointing fingers and saying, you, you know, you're killing my grandma. But isn't that, or do you think that as unempathetic as that is, that has had some positive effect just given how dire the situation is? Yeah, so that type of shaming uh, certainly doesn't feel empathetic because you're trying to create a negative emotion in somebody else. But let's view it another way. Uh, the person who's saying, you're killing my grandma by going on spring break or whatever, is probably thinking about their grandma and, and, and trying to protect her. <laughs> and I think that, so this is something that in economics and, and psychology, we would think of as altruistic punishment. In essence, you look for bad actors and sanction them in some way, whether it's materially or in this case, reputationally, right, in terms of shame uh, for harming the greater good. And th that is a very potent way to protect the greater good. Of course, it can get out of hand. But I do think that this is a new world for all of us and social norms develop 
on the fly. We're all learning what counts as right and wrong on a day-to-day basis. And part of the way that we learn that is by emerging agreement amongst ourselves. And, and so shaming is a very visible way of saying, hey, this is not right right now. So there's one last thing I wanted to ask you, which is I have, a, I have a little theory that part of the reason why, say, the murder rate goes down after a tragedy or that people really do act empathetically, altruistically during a time of crisis gets at the word insensitive or the word thoughtless. And so often the unempathetic way that we act isn't a sin of uh, commission. It's just that we were being thoughtless during these times. It's harder to be thoughtless. Um, the media that we're watching is often news media, and this is top of mind. I mean, every second of every day is more or less imbued with the task at hand. And therefore, it's less likely that we'll just default to, oh, I wasn't thinking and I was needlessly unkind. And that accounts for a lot of the good behavior. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, in a way, empathy is the connection between our uh, sort of emotional instincts to care for one another and our capacity for imagination. What is in our mind? Who do we see? Who do we, whose experiences do we understand? And a lot of the time, most of us are walking around with, you know, pretty, uh, pretty focused aperture, just thinking about ourselves and, and the people we know. And so our unkindness towards strangers comes, as you say, from thoughtlessness, from just not, not realizing what their experiences are. And, you know, I think that uh, tragedies and disasters are interesting because they suddenly make us aware, they shock us really into a realization of our common fate and common identity with other people. We're all mortal. We're all capable of being affected by horrible things. And that brings us together. The thing is that most disasters are mercifully very short. And as they fade our sort of blinders to other people return. I think for me, one of the interesting and difficult things about this pandemic is it is a slow disaster. We are going to be really acutely affected by it, intensely affected by it for months to come. And then we will continue to be more sort of, I guess there'll be lingering effects of it that last years and continue to affect lots and lots of people economically, socially, and culturally. And I think a, a question is, can we use that really dark fact to keep our aperture open, to keep our awareness of other people and their struggles and their experiences heightened? Um, so, you know, as, as you know, my book is all about the idea that we can, that we can turn moments of kindness and empathy into habits. And this is one of the, no, it is the biggest test case for that possibility that I've ever seen or I think any of us have experienced uh, in our lifetime. Jamil Zaki is a professor at Stanford where he runs the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab. He is the author of The War, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. It's April 1st, rent is due, and a lot of people are going to struggle to pay it. That is a horrible fate in any economic time, but in a moment when shelter in place is literally the order from the government, to deny people shelter isn't just heartless, it's an opposition to the public health. 
To that end, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, also Gavin Newsom of California, have placed moratoriums on evictions. In New York, it's for 90 days. In California, it's for 60 days. That's good. Cuomo has gone further. He's issued guidance to banks. We're also going to uh, take a uh, bold action, but a necessary action that uh, offering 90-day relief on mortgage payments, waiving mortgage payments based on financial hardship, meaning if you are not working, if you're working only part-time, we're going to have the banks and financial institutions waive mortgage payments for 90 days. Okay, so no evictions, even if renters don't pay their rent, and 90-day leeway for mortgage payments You know, if landlords don't have the rent coming in, but they still have to pay off their banks. That seems like kind of a best case scenario for a worst case scenario, which is what we're living in right now. Not so. Not the best we could do. Do better, say a group of activists. And these activists also include government officials who have created a movement called hashtag cancel rent. As its name might suggest, its aim is to cancel the rent, not to suspend or postpone or get the government to assist with the rent just to make the rent go bye-bye. Here's New York State Senator Michael Giannaris speaking to the Capitol Press Room podcast from Syracuse broadcaster WCNY. We have to realize that this is something that is going to happen, whether we pass a law or not. People will not be paying their rent. Uh, Landlords that are in need will not be able to pay their mortgages because the rent's not coming in. We'd be much better off putting some regulatory structure around it as opposed to just um, letting it happen and result in a massive housing crisis in a couple months' time where people... Well, yes, agreed. An actual plan for what could be big housing difficulties is better than no plan. So what is the plan? What is the plan to cancel rent? Apparently, that is the plan. Let's just cancel the rent. Hope it works out. Don't require the tenants to pay the rent. You don't have to pay the rent. Okay, then if the landlords need the rent maybe don't require them to pay their mortgages, all right, but if the banks want their mortgages, well, that's about where the plan fizzles out. Cancel rent rests on an unfunded idea that it's wrong to ask people who can't afford to pay rent in tough times to pay rent in tough times. Therefore, let's ask them not to do it. I'll read Gianaris's bill, 8125. Here's the funding mechanism they're in. Establish in the joint custody of the Commissioner of Housing and Community Renewal and the Controller a special fund to be known as the COVID-19 Rental Assistance Fund. All right, so it's establishing a fund. Let's, let's read about this fund. Such fund shall consist of any unrestricted federal emergency assistance funding provided to the state that may be appropriated for such purpose and all other monies appropriated, credited, or transferred thereto from any other fund or source Pursuant to law, nothing in this section shall prevent the state from soliciting and receiving grants, gifts, or bequests for the purpose of the fund as defined in this section and depositing them into the fund according to law. You got that? The fund is, we'll take whatever money someone else gives us. In fact, there is a requirement that all bills in New York State answer the question, how much will it cost the state? So under the section, fiscal implications... This bill lists, quote, none to the state. So I was still wondering how the idea of cancel rent or New York's rent freeze would work. So I read an article in New York Magazine titled, How Will New York's Rent Freeze Work? After reading it, I was left wondering how New York's rent freeze will work. 
because all the article said was, quote, should the bill pass, lawmakers say the details, like how the law would apply to roommates and subletters, will be left to state agencies to hash out. The only lawmaker quoted was Giannaris, who said, quote, the federal aid package will be helpful in that regard. Once you get past that to the next rung, the mortgage holders and the banks, I think they're better equipped to absorb some of the sacrifice and more likely to be the beneficiaries of federal assistance. Well, I mean, during the bank bailout, the banks were bailed out. But during this crisis, there are actually no provisions to give any money to the banks. I haven't read that in any of the three phases of stimuli that have passed, nor in the fourth to come. It's easy to say, well, mortgage holders can absorb some sacrifice. And by the way, if it's a government mandate, it's not a sacrifice. But mortgage holders have obligations of their own. They're often secured by third parties or insured by them. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the New York representative from Queens in the Bronx, was on the Brian Lair show yesterday supporting the cancel rent idea, but doing no more to answer how than anyone else did. She did criticize Governor Cuomo, however. The governor has not just issued a foreclosure moratorium in the state of New York. He has called for mortgage payment suspensions. And so if he believes that just placing a, for, a moratorium on foreclosures isn't enough. Surely um, a person who's made that decision should also apply that standard to renters and say that a foreclosure on, a, on just evictions isn't enough. But what really happened is that the state's Department of Financial Services just issued a rather toothless, that is the word that's been quoted, a toothless guidance letter urging lenders to do their part. Cuomo has, by decree said no one is to be evicted. That's the law. But he's also said renters should communicate with their landlords about the ability to pay and that banks and mortgage lenders should work with their clients if they need to delay a payment. But not much more than that. They urge the banks to do the right thing. Still, Ocasio-Cortez alleged a double standard. If you called for a suspension um, or a moratorium on mortgage payments, then we should also call for that same treatment on rent payments. And um, with, when you hold one standard, we're being more generous to mortgagers than, or rather people who are receiving mortgages than you are on people who are renters, which is two-thirds of New York City. Um, you, we're kind of creating a class and race issue. We're essentially rewarding and offering preferential treatment to landowners and um, folks who are more wealthy. And, um, and we're not offering that same kind of relief to renters. None of that's true. The governor has said tenants won't be evicted. That is a law. As for the rest of it, it's just an ask. To quote the New York Times today, while tenants will be protected for at least 90 days from eviction, landlords have not yet been provided similar protections. Mr. Cuomo has urged banks to waive mortgage payments for three months, but he does not have the authority to order them to do so. Other bills, such as water and sewer, have not been postponed. Words like moratorium, suspend, freeze, they might seem like synonyms to cancel, but they are not. The bill in the legislature, supported by more than just the sponsor, Giannaris, and vocally backed by AOC, literally seeks to swoop in, absolve renters from paying, and not make the people who are not getting their payment whole in any way. It gestures at federal funding, maybe that could come. 
Giannaris has said that people who have already paid off their mortgages should be able to go without rent payments more easily than people with mortgages or more easily than renters themselves can afford. Okay, um, I'm going to guess that statistically that's probably true, but is it a wise matter of government policy or contract law or setting expectations that the government won't simply decree, oh, you're not getting paid because we suspect you can afford not to be paid? I'll go further than all this. In an op-ed, Giannaris writes, quote, there is a moral imperative to hashtag cancel rent. He wrote the hashtag. I say it is deeply immoral to float such a proposal with no means of accomplishing it. It's fine to have a theory that renters need protection. Renters do need protection. Granted, okay, then what? Let's think out the next sentence. It is childlike and irresponsible to position this hashtag as an actual government intervention. There are stories of young people, I guess maybe older than young people, actually considering withholding their rent. There is talk of rent strikes popping up online like it's a cause. I'm sympathetic to the economic hardships that millions of people are being subjected to, but don't substitute realism with righteousness. According to the AP, Activist organizations in many places are leading the push for a strike. A group called Rent Strike 2020 is organizing on the national level. Advocates in St. Louis are encouraging those who can afford rent to join the movement in solidarity with those who can't. Oh my God, what a terrible idea. That will just rob maintenance workers and utility employees and management companies and small-time landlords who need the income, it will just make them suffer unnecessarily. It will possibly put them out in the street. You know, there are a lot of good people coming together during this crisis, and there are even some less than stellar people who are doing the right thing, who are sacrificing. But this wanton talk of rent strikes and championing unfunded fixes, it's an example of people who think they're doing good doing something pretty harmful. It's ideologically selfish, and it displays an inability to adapt to the times. And that's something that we would surely criticize in other people. No, you can't just cancel rent, but you can get a hold of yourself and cancel careless floating of ill-considered government non-solutions. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the associate producer of The Gist. She empathizes with the narwhal, which could be seen as magical, but only the unicorn, land-based creature, gets that treatment. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, empathizes with Prince's mother. She and he, and I guess Prince also, never really satisfied. The Gist. My idea? F-train sardines. Okay, they're still packed tightly, but they're arranged in a perpendicular fashion in some places so that one of the sardines in the corner is miserable because he's begging one of the other sardines who's wearing headphones that this is his stop. Can he move? Can he please get out? Anyway, it's a million dollar idea. Oomperu, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening.